All right, welcome to RUF. Those of you who stuck around and hadn't already gone home. Uh, really glad you're here. Hope that, uh, especially this evening, your first or second time, you feel welcome. Feel like it's a safe place to ask questions uh, and examine. Uh, what I want to do tonight before we do anything else, I, I'm sure many of you heard, there's another uh, shooting on a college campus today. There's a uh, community college in Oregon. There are 13 uh, people dead and many more injured. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray uh, and then also pray for tonight. Um, it's times like this that you're reminded that uh, this world really isn't the way it's supposed to be. So let me pray. Father, uh, we do, we come to you tonight, and there's confusion. Um, I don't know, sometimes I feel like if I was running this world, this isn't the way that I would, I would let things happen. Um, but you're sovereign, and um, it's, a, it's, it's a reminder that evil is real. And that this world is broken. And we pray, Lord, for that community. We pray for the families uh, who have lost loved ones. Uh, we pray for just uh, for healing grief to come to that place. Lord, you are the God who specializes in showing up in hurt and confusion and death. And so, uh, would you go? Would you go there uh, with your people and bring healing? Lord, you um, help us to know how to come to you uh, with this kind of stuff. And Lord, would you come, Lord Jesus, come and bring your kingdom. Uh, we look forward to the day that there will be no more sorrow and no more tears and no more sin. And Lord, we pray for tonight. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word and even swallow some uh, very hard things, uh, but to believe that you're good through them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, imagine um, you were told uh, that an individual forgave one of your debts. Now recognize the next question you would have is, which debt? And if somebody, you know, paid your, um, I don't know, your electrical bill this month, you'd think that was very kind and and you'd be thankful. If somebody told you that they covered the rest of your tuition of school, your joy and thankfulness would increasingly go up, right? Right? Keep that in your mind, because right, what we're doing every week is we're going back to the beginning. Anthony Degani is here. He's arrived. I'm sorry. <laughs> Late as usual, Anthony. So, just uh, yeah, I, can, I can still beat him up. Um, and so every week, right, we're going back to season one, episode one, and saying maybe some of our confusion, maybe some of our boredom, going to be answered if we remember the beginning. And here's my challenge. Maybe you're bored with Jesus tonight. And what about if that's because you've forgotten the reality of sin and just what you've been saved from? What if the best thing you can do to be amazed at Jesus is to look at just how wicked our sin is? And others of you, I admit, you're probably um, repulsed by the idea of a judging God and understand that. And I hope you'll listen, and maybe you'll see that God's holiness and God's judgment are an aspect of His love, and He can be no other way. Let's, uh, let's read Genesis 6. I'm just going to read part of this, and I'll reference uh, the rest of it as we go, uh, starting in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. 
So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with the violence through them. Behold, I'll destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Okay, if you, uh, if you need an outline to pay attention, here's where we're going. Notes on your sheet. We're seeing the destruction of sin. We're seeing the judgment of sin. And then we're going to see salvation from sin. All right, first, the destruction of sin. This is what we just read. Without, here's my suggestion, without a proper understanding of the reality of evil, this whole passage will seem crazy and out there. And that's what the beginning of this story is trying to get you to understand and feel. It wants us to feel the weightiness and the wickedness of sin. Because if you miss that, you miss the rest of it. Look at the description in verse 5. It's almost like Moses, who wrote this, is struggling to describe just how bad man is at his core. He says, The wickedness of man was great, and every intention of his thought, uh, thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the heart is the essence of a person. Genesis says that the essence of man is that every intention of him was evil all the time. That's pretty bad. And in verse 11, the earth was corrupt and filled with violence. I want you to feel the weight of that tonight. This is the same world... The same world that just a few weeks ago when we started the semester in Genesis 1 and 2, when God created this world, and especially the pinnacle of His creation, mankind, He looked at it, at all of its beauty, at all of its life, and He took great pleasure in it and said, this is good. And now, as sin has entered the world and mankind has spread sin all throughout the world, God looks at that same world and it's corrupt in His sight. That's how much decay, that's how much destruction and violence sin has brought to the world that that God loves. And especially to the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman. So the beginning of Genesis 6, it really is saying this. Behold the destructive power of sin. See how wicked it really is. That which was so good that it brought pleasure to the God of this universe... Sin has done something that now it is corrupt in his, in his sight. I have a, uh, my friend named Tim, um, he uh, played football at Central Arkansas. And uh, he told me a story about how one time he, on a normal Monday after a game, he started feeling uh, what he thought was regular pain, kind of in his back, you know, usual soreness. But then on Tuesday, it started getting worse, and it kind of moved into his uh, stomach and kind of all over his body. And, and by Tuesday afternoon, he was in increasing pain and thinking, I don't think this is normal football injury. And so he went to the, to the on-campus clinic, and they examined him, and the nurse said, well, you have appendicitis. And she said, so, you know, call your mom. It's time to get your appendix removed. I'm taking you into surgery. And Tim, very aversion to kind of surgery. And, and he's tough, and, and he said, whoa, 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 whoa. wait, let's, let's talk about my options here real quick. Um, 
He said, I, you know, I, I can handle pain. I can handle being, being in pain for a little while longer. Can we do medicine? Can we do something like this? Like, what, what's my other option? And the nurse said, your other option is that your appendix is going to burst. You'll get gangrene and you'll die. And he closed his eyes and he said, let's do it. And that, that's the reality of sin. That it, that it seems normal, that it seems like not that big of a deal, but unaddressed, it will destroy you. And that's the first step of Christianity. If you're trying to figure out what Christianity is, the first step of Christianity, it's not warm fuzziness. The first step is being disturbed by your own sin. And actually, it's a continual process. But realizing that sin is violent, that sin is destructive, and it may not even feel like that, but that it really is killing you. And that's my first question. Have you uncorked the evil of sin? Not just out there. But right, Genesis just said, it's in our hearts. And we just want to deny that. Both individually and as a society, right? When real evil shows up, hear me on this. I believe in mental illness. I believe in all kinds of reasons for sin, okay? And all kinds of other factors. But have you not noticed when real evil shows up, we have to explain it away somehow. We say, oh, well, there's, there's mental illness. But this is what this is teaching, that sin is in here, and it's destructive. And have you realized that? It might not be as visible, it might not, you might not be as aware, it might not be obvious, but it's all heinous, and it's all violence. Because sin is living against how, you were, how you're designed to, to, to function. And so if you put gas, if you put water in a car, it, it, it will do violence to the car until it breaks down. All sin does violence to you, to people, and is at war with God, and it will destroy you. And so things like the, the evil of, of sexual and physical abuse, it is obvious and it is destructive. And some of you have felt that, and you know that's true. But what's less obvious is how just something like the neglect of relationships, how isolating yourself from people is actually a slow destruction and will decay you. You know, things like the overt addiction to something like drugs, you know, that seems obvious to you. But the seeds of lust and hate and objectifying people so that you can use them for your own gain socially or physically or whatever... It's just as destructive. It always ends in violence. And see, when you combine the evil of sin in this world and the fact that God deeply loves this world, if sin really does destroy that which God loves, judgment's coming. It has to. He loves this world too much to let sin destroy it. So that brings us to the judgment of sin. God's response in seeing just how corrupt and how evil mankind has become and how much destruction it's bringing on this world. He says, I will make an end of all flesh. I will destroy it with this earth. And he's going to do it by flood. And we say, yikes, that's unsettling. And it is. But here the rationale. If evil is not out there, but it's something in here... The only way to destroy evil is to destroy humanity. Realize that. If he's going to cleanse the world of all evil, destroy all sin, 
then he has to sweep away humanity because sin is here, not out there. So God's goodness and God's holiness and God's love of what he made demands justice, demands that he cleanse the world of evil. In the same way that if your sibling or somebody that you love has cancer, your love for them demands that you want that cancer destroyed. So what does this judgment on sin and humanity look like? Four things. First, God's judgment is reluctant. Did you see this back in verse 6? This is some of the more amazing verses in, in the Old Testament. When God saw what His image, mankind, had become, and what has happened to His world, He is sorry. And it grieves Him to the heart. There is a deep sorrow and a deep grief that comes out of God about judging the world. That word for grief is the same word that's used in 2 Samuel uh, 2 to describe... David's emotional state when he finds out that his son has been killed. That's the pain, that's the grief of the Lord of this universe over the wickedness and the destruction of this world. So whatever you want to do with God's judgment and and all its terrifying facets, and it is, you cannot remove it from the character of the real God, of who He is. You recoil at judgment... God recalls even more. You think you love the world? God loves it more than you do. It pains Him more than you do. The greatest amount of grief that you've experienced over sin is just a pales in comparison to the grief that, that God feels over this world. Do you remember back at the beginning of the semester, if you were with us first week, we looked at Genesis 1 and said, Genesis 1 sets the tone. Here's who God is. He's a life giver. He's a creator. He's a sharer. He loves to love. That's who he is. He's unchangeable. So that's what he's always going to be about. If that's who he is, then it shouldn't surprise us that when judging and destruction and, and taking life away happens out of God, it grieves him. It's not what he loves to do. It's not what's central. It's not what he's about. And I'm always reminded of uh, man, that great scene in Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever read The Magician's Nephew, where Diggory, the whole kind of tenor of the book, his mom is very ill, and he comes across this, this character, Aslan, this great lion who has immense power and is also very scary. And Aslan is talking to him and, and asking him to do something, and finally Diggory just, just blurts out, but please, won't you, won't you cure my mother? And what the magician's nephew, the way it describes it next, is, it's amazing. He says, he looked up and what he saw shocked him more than anything else he had ever seen. Because the great and fierce lion, wonder of wonders, his head was bent down and great big shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. The tears were so big compared to Diggory's that for a moment... He felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than even he was himself. That's the picture of the God who judges this world. That he cares about it more than you do. And it brings him great sorrow. This is why most of you, it grates against you when you see, whatever, Christians or people, holding signs of judgment in a very cold way that say things like God hates fill in the blank or, or you're going to hell. Or It's not that hell isn't real. It's not that God's judgment isn't real. 
But the reason that should grate against you is, is because it's not true. Because they are holding it with a coldness. And that's not godliness. Godliness looks like holding that sign and weeping with compassion. Like a father does over a child. And the destruction that's going on in, in somebody's life. So I don't know where you are tonight. But you're... It, you're It might be that your skepticism with God, the thing that you struggle with, is because of the pain in your life? Or the evil done to you? Or the evil out in this world? And how do you square that? And I'm not going to be simplistic about that struggle. I think that struggle is weird. I I think that's one of the hardest questions to answer. But don't miss this. This is telling you that the true God is not immune to pain. He's not. He has felt it. He grieves for us. It hurts God deeply. It hurts Him more than it hurts us because His heart is bigger than our heart. He is more pure than we are. And so it hurts Him more. Our grief hurts Him more than it hurts us. And so I would just ask you to consider what John Stott says. That a God who is immune to pain, I struggle to believe in. But a God who will experience pain and take pain, That might not not answer all your questions. But maybe you can start there. Only Christianity says that. First of all, you see that he's reluctant. Second of all, you see it's effective and thorough. This is all of chapter 7. In in verse 17, he says, I'll bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, flesh, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything on earth shall die. And the flood really accomplishes what God's purpose is. It destroys everything that's not in the ark. It does exactly what God said it was going to do. It destroys all life. When the water comes out of the earth and, and from the heavens for 40 days, everything that has life on, uh, everything that has breath on, on land dies. And I know this is hard to stomach. We know these chapters are hurtful because we, we try to make the flood like a kid's story. But just realize this. For every elephant and giraffe's head that is sticking out of the ark, there are thousands of carcasses. There are only eight people in the ark and there are thousands of people dying. It is terrifying. And you see that God's judgment on sin is powerful and it's effective and it's thorough. Every animal and human outside the ark dies. God's judgment does exactly what He says it's going to do. It accomplishes its purpose. And this should be sobering. If evil is going to be cleansed, it has to be thorough. It has to accomplish what God wants. In the same way that if you have cancer, you have to want the chemo to cleanse it all. You need the chemo to be really powerful and to take it away. Thirdly, you see that God's justice is just. This is interesting. I don't know what your mental picture of judgment is, but but look at this. In verse 11 and 12, it says, The earth was corrupt. Behold, it was corrupt for all flesh, and corrupted their way on earth. And then in verse 17, here's how God pronounces the judgment. I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. That word destroy is the same word used back in, in, in 11 and 12 to describe what Sin is doing to the world. So you see what God's saying? 
Man is bringing destruction and corruption. If that's what man wants, then then I'm going to send destruction and corruption. God's judgment is that He gives them what they want. You want to live for violence, destruction, and corruption? I will give that to you. And the whole world will come apart. And I want you to hear this. God's wrath, God's judgment, it's punishment. But it's God giving you what you want. It's really fair. This is how Paul describes it in Romans 1, uh, 24 through 28. You can go read it. That God's judgment is He finally gives you what you desire. He gives you over to what you've wanted your whole life. God's wrath, it's being poured out. It is real. It is terrible, but it's perfectly just. It's an outworking of what they're living for. And you've seen this. You've seen this whether it's in Breaking Bad or any other documentary about drugs. There's this one called Faces of Meth that follows what what crystal meth does to people. And it's very sobering because they show these pictures of before and after, before they started meth and after, and you can see the destruction on their bodies. And here's what's so depressing. They desperately want something. They desperately want meth more than anything else. And when they get it, it's the very thing that destroys them. And the message of Genesis 6 is that a flood is coming. Not one day, someday. Though it is. Romans 1 says God's wrath is a present reality today. And it doesn't look like hurricanes coming out of nowhere. It looks like God giving you over to what you want. And so what that looks like is this. Some of you really do think that real happiness and real joy is away from God and His silly and restrictive commands. And so you've made life all about your own pursuits, all about your own pleasure. And guess what? I bet it's your sophomore and junior. I don't enjoy saying this. But I bet it's just a little bit easier to do those things that you never thought that you would do. It just doesn't bother you as much. That's the flood. That's the hardening. He's giving you slowly over to the life away from Him. And He loves you enough to let you feel that. So that maybe you'll come back to Him. If you sit here Thursday night after Thursday night and you refuse to listen to God's Word, because you've already heard it, or, or fill in the blank. And if you think, well, I'll start listening when I get out of college and get married, if you continue to refuse to listen to God's Word, realize the Bible sometimes says He just gives you what you want, and you'll stop hearing. That's the flood. Or some of us are just dead bent on showing others that you're better than they are. That you're you're dead set on showing God that you are good enough. And so all the guilt that plagues you, you try to wash it away by community service or outdoing other people or being at church. And you just want God and other people to notice how good that you are. Here's the deal. If you want to relate to God on some merit system, refusing to accept God's grace, He will give you what you want. And you'll grow prideful. You'll look down on others. You'll feel better about yourself. And it's God giving you what you want. And you'll be lonely and miserable and angry and bitter. 
Because life doesn't go the way that you want it. And you've been so good. And other people haven't. It's the flood. It's a present reality. And so here we are. Like we are looking at this unsettling reality of God's loving, holy judgment. It's reluctant, but it's effective. And it's thorough. And it's supposed to feel you lead... Especially to leave you feeling with this, this crisis. If God loves this world so much and people so much that he's going to cleanse the, cleanse the world of all evil by judging it. And sin isn't out there but it's in here. What's the hope? Honestly. And you need to feel this. The flood doesn't work. That's kind of the point. God cleanses the world of everything but the most righteous person he could find in his family... Know is the best the world has to offer. And guess what? It doesn't work. Because you know what else came into the ark with Noah and his family and, and animals? Sin came into the ark. And so once all this is over and Noah starts populating the earth again, guess what? Sin populates the earth. And now thousands of years later, the world is filled with violence and wickedness. And the heart of man does evil all the time. So Genesis 6 wants us to feel the weight of sin and its reality and realize that God cannot be trifled with. This is who He is. We're not going to win this war. And what will you do with that realization? How can God completely eradicate the world of sin and not destroy us if we're so sinful? The hope... Is only if God can find a way to judge and destroy sin and yet rescue humanity through it. And that's what happens, right? The rescue from sin looks, looks like this. Look at the promise that God makes to Noah. In chapter 9, after the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah. Think of that as a contract. And he says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you and I'll never again destroy all things about flood. Never. And how does he promise it? He hangs a rainbow, a bow, in the clouds. So he's saying man is violent, destroying the earth. But then he hangs a symbol of violence in the air. That word for bow is not like a hair bow. It's a war bow. And he hangs that in the clouds to remind them that he will never do this again. And he's driving home the point that he has hung his bow. And think about this. This is what Spurgeon points out. That for the rest of the time, God would have an arrow pointing at his own heart. A very visible reminder. Right? Which way does the bow face? What God is saying is the next time that I'm going to bring cosmic judgment. The next time I will be thorough and just and effective with my judgment. That will make me recoil. It's going to be on myself. I will let my bow go. And the wrath of my judgment will go into me instead of humanity. It will go into my very own eternal begotten son. And sure enough, thousands of years later, God himself, the one and only perfectly righteous man, the God-man, gets put on the cross. And the bow of God's wrath and fury gets unleashed. It unleashes the wrath of God not just for one person's sin, but for the sin of all God's people. And it goes out on Jesus. And his judgment is thorough and complete and effective. 
How can Jesus be going, undergoing the cosmic flood if he never did anything wrong, if he was perfectly righteous? It must be because he is there for somebody else's destruction and somebody else's sin. And that's it. You want to know how evil and destructive our sin is? Don't look at the flood. Look at the cross. When our sin covered Jesus, it is so corrupt and so violent that it killed him. It killed him. When our sin went to Jesus, it degrades Jesus so much that God the Father turns his back on him. And when our sin goes on to Jesus, the full and effective and complete wrath of God goes on to Jesus that he cries out, It is finished. What's finished? The flood. The wrath of God. God is so holy and loving that all of sin is going to be destroyed and, and judged and cleansed. And that means there is a day that's coming where King Jesus is going to do that. But God is so gracious and so merciful that He will judge and destroy His own Son instead of you. If you'll see it. That's the connection that the Apostle Peter makes in Second Peter, uh, 1 Peter 3, where he says, In the days of Noah, while the ark was being built, and it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Did you hear it? Just as Noah was saved through water, so too are you saved through baptism. Because it's a pledge. It's a pledge of God's cleansing towards you. The judgment saved Noah. The waters of judgment lifted the ark up. And saved him. And the only way for you to be safe from God's judgment is not to get your life together. It's not to finally have your, your good Monday you thought that you'd have. It's to get into the ark. That's your only hope. The only way to be safe from condemnation is to hide in the one who has already been condemned fully. The only way to be safe from the coming judgment day is to hide in the one whose judgment day happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus on the cross really does get treated as if he's a sexual predator, as if he's a murderer, as if he's full of all kinds of evil. Because if you'll trust him, that goes to Jesus. And he pays fully for it, so there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. None. That means... If you're at summer conference, remember this. Brian Haybig used this analogy. If you're a Christian, you can murder somebody and walk out of this room and you will go to heaven. And when you hear that, you might think blasphemy. But there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And as soon as you hear that, if you realize that you stand in Jesus and His perfect righteousness and His finished work, here's all in That means now God's attitude towards sin is really good news. Because what this this is saying is that God is now for you. If the condemnation and penalty of sin has been removed, and now you realize that, that God is dead set on destroying all sin and cleansing all of your evil, that's good news. Because if you're convinced that ultimately my problem is sin, my sin is the most destructive thing that I know, it means in Christ you'll never be judged for that. And it means in Christ you are now a new creation. Which means your sin is not who you are anymore. Paul calls it the old you. 
And God's coming after it. And He's going to destroy it. His judgment is effective and thorough. He will destroy the old you because that's not the real you anymore. The real you is new, is in Christ. And now God, for the rest of your life, is going to bring His thorough, His effective, and His just power until He eradicates sin from your life completely. And isn't that what you want? A God who will attack your sin with weeping and sadness because He knows how painful it is. He knows repentance hurts. But a Father who is thorough and effective in sin, that he will, He's going to destroy it all. He will not quit working until He has cleansed every bit of selfishness, every bit of lust, every bit of distorted sexual desire, every bit of gossip, until you are completely pure and righteous. Nothing's going to stop it. Nothing. That's an invitation. Behold the power of sin, but behold the depths and power of God's grace. Let's pray. Father, this is a, it's a difficult chapter. Uh, it's not the one that I would honestly choose to teach on. But you're not ashamed of your wrath. You're not ashamed of your holiness. Lord, you are what we need. And so we've asked that you would give us eyes to see that because you are loving, you judge. Would you give us eyes to see that we are worthy of judgment, but can run to the very one who we have offended and find that there is grace that is greater than our sin? Would we experience that tonight for the first time or for the thousandth time? In Jesus' name, amen.